Welcome to the Catholic Sportsman Show. I'm Paul McElhinney, along with my co-host, Randy Lea. And before we talk to our guest, Hugh Blaine, and get into our conversation, we're going to start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, as we continue our Lenten journey, we ask you to send the Holy Spirit down upon us in our conversation. And we ask Our Lady's intercession for all the graces we're to receive today. Hail Mary, full of grace, full of the grace, Lord is with Lord thee. Is with thee. Blessed, blessed art thou amongst women, women. and blessed, blessed is, the, is fruit the fruit of thy womb, womb Jesus. Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Sebastian, patron saint of Christian athletes. Pray for us. Blessed Carlo Acutis, the technical blessed of the Catholic Sportsman Show. Pray for us. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, well, Amen. Excited to have our guest, Hugh Blaine, on today. Hugh is married, and he has um, started his own consulting company, Claris Consulting. And uh, we just have uh, lots of questions to dive in about his uh, sports and faith life and how this consulting company all started. <laughs> Wow. It's going to be Sounds big. exciting here. It's going to be great. It will. Hugh, to start off, would you please share some background regarding your, your life and the intersection between your faith and sports? Mm. I'd be happy to. Thank you, Randy. The, the interesting thing about my sports journey started when I'm, so I was born in the U.K., uh, I'm a native-born Scotsman. Now, most people, as soon as I say that, they say, well, you have to prove it. So I'm just going to mm -hmm. prove it to everybody. So my name is Hugh Blaine. I was born in Glasgow, Scotland, lived there until I was 10 years old, and then I immigrated to the United States. Now, that's as much as I'm going to do because all of my Scottish <laughs> relatives say that is the worst Scottish accent we have ever heard. <laughs> Stop. My mother's brother was a professional soccer player, football player in the U.K., so Peter Rice was kind of the big guy on campus around our house. He played professionally, and then he became the coach of the Scottish national team, the 16 and unders. So, you know, sports and athletics was always a part of the family folklore, right, on my mother's side. And I remember at a very early age of maybe six or seven being taken out to the 16 and under um, a practice field. And my uncle Peter said, why don't you go stand in, in, in the goal area? And they had some 16 year olds kicking soccer balls and every single one of them went past me. <laughs> I didn't stop one of them and they were really fast. So I was always fascinated by sports and, you know, I was fascinated by team sports and then the individual contributions that individuals would make. And so I was also raised Catholic. So, you know, the intersection of faith was just, you know, it was always there, you know. And, and so was athletics because Peter had, you know, gotten pretty significant renown. So that was like the starting point for me was just to know that it was there from a, maybe a gene perspective. So that's kind of where it started. All right. And then, um, and we were talking about your, your spiritual journey, right? So you, you start mm. off Catholic, right? But then you yeah. went away from God and came back to God. Uh, kind of what, what drew you away oh. and, and, and how did you get back? It's a, the big journey, what, an important journey. Do you remember your interview with uh, Deacon Ferrari? And I don't remember his first name. Franco? Um, Marcello? Marcello, that's right. Because yeah. I looked at the name and went, oh, my word, this guy must love cars. Marcello Ferrari. You know, I just went, this guy probably loves speed. Um, so interestingly enough, being a Scotsman, we are not the most emotionally uh, outpouring kind of 
population. So the faith that I grew up with was a kind of pointy finger dogma. This is what you'll do. And, you know, and I remember distinctly my father saying, as long as you are living in my house, you will go to church. The moment you don't go to church, you're not living in my house. So, you know, as far as catechesis, I never really had any. I mean, I was, I was baptized, I was confirmed, had first communion, but there wasn't, it wasn't personal. My faith was never personal. It wasn't relational. You know, and as some Protestants would, would ask, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? No, I didn't. I never really did. And when I was listening to the deacon, he said he left for one reason. There wasn't really anything to hold him there. There were no guardrails. And, and so why I left was I was dating a woman who was a divorcee. And my mother said, this is not a good idea. So you need to go to the parish priest and you need to talk to him about this. Now, I'm 22, 23. Um, and I went to the priest and he said, run for the hills. Mm. I didn't like that answer. So I went to a different parish and talked to a different priest and I got a different answer. And so I, in my little 22-year-old brain said, this church doesn't know what it's doing. There's not really, I mean, I can go to one church and get one answer. So I drifted away for two reasons. One, I felt like it was disingenuous that I could get two different answers. And the second reason was, is because I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. There wasn't anything to hold me there. So I went and for 25 years went into Eastern mysticism. So I went into Buddhism and Hinduism, which was spiritual, but it wasn't quote unquote religious. So I, I didn't feel like I was too far afield. And I said that what I wanted to do was I wanted to have business success. Um, and I wanted to be spiritual. And then in 2009, I had a business reversal that was very similar to a business reversal my father experienced. And, and it was such that I did not want to go to work. I had just purchased a company, just bought out one of the owners. And then the 2008 financial crisis hit. And so all of a sudden the bank calls the line of credit. One of my business partners gets cancer and they're going to be out. Uh, somebody embezzled $160,000 and and all of a sudden, and then you got the financial crisis. And so all of a sudden I was thinking I'm buying this and I'm going to flip it. And in five years have the financial resources to walk away. And all of a sudden I was completely the inverse mm. and I was scrambling and I was sitting on my couch one day watching TV, not wanting to go to work and I'm flipping through channels and I've got a cup of coffee in my right hand and the remote control in the left hand. And I flip through channels and a televangelist comes on. And her name was Joyce Meyer, and she's not Catholic, but I stopped and started listening to her. I don't know why, Holy Spirit moment, right? And she says something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, if you are at the end of your rope and you've tried everything on your own, maybe it's time that you stop and ask God for help. So, and then she does an altar call. And she said, for those of you who are at home and you can't be here, maybe what you should do is just get on your knees and just pray. So I'm looking at my coffee cup and I'm looking at the TV and I'm looking at my coffee cup and I'm going back and forth, back and forth. And I'm not wanting to get on my knees because that's a position of surrender. I'm not wanting to get on my knees because it feels like I'm giving up. And I'm, I'm still of that independent nature. I don't need an outsider's help. But somehow or another, I find myself slipping off the couch, getting on my knees and saying the only prayer I could say. And I, I remember it to this degree that I said something like, if you can hear me, help me. And that was it. Mm. I got back up on the couch, picked up my coffee cup, turned off the TV. And I think I even said, well, that didn't do any good because, you know, there was no lightning bolt and nothing transpired in that moment. 
But what was interesting is about three weeks later, my next door neighbor came over who was a Presbyterian. And he said, listen, I know you're going through a difficult time with work, but our, par- our uh, pastor's doing a three-part seminar on the intersection of faith and work. And he's going to talk about scripture, C.S. Lewis, and a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton. I'm not sure if you know who he is. Did not know who Chesterton was. And he said, do you want to go? I said, well, I'll go to one of them and see, you know, what it's like. Well, the next thing you know, I'm going to services on Sunday. And then all of a sudden, I stayed in the church for like seven years. And all of a sudden, I became ravenously reading people like uh, Tim Keller, who was a a Presbyterian minister, really smart guy, started reading C.S. Lewis. And all of a sudden, just kind of naturally, I'm just back in the church. And I got people pouring into me and loving on me, cycling buddies that I was with. And they would say, you need to read this, listen to this podcast, do this. And I was just soaking it up. And my best man in my wedding was Catholic. And he starts to listen to all these questions I'm asking. And, um, and then that was the point when I said, okay, I want to learn more. And he started giving me Catholic authors. So this idea of my spiritual journey away from God was because it wasn't personal. And then what really brought me back into the faith was in how incredibly relational and personal our faith life is. And then when that reality became real, there was no turning back. I was all in. <laughs> Did I answer your question? So the so these authors that you read, they just kind of inspired you and kind of gave you the the guardrails you needed to to stay. Is that yeah? Well, they started answering some of the questions that mm-hmm. am I should I really be paying attention to the pastor? Should I be paying attention to the individual? And if the if the sermon is good, does that mean it was a good experience? No. I mean, I do holy hour every morning. And when I do the liturgy of the hours, for example, and I start reading the church fathers, when you read Augustine, when you read Aquinas, when you read um, some of the church fathers, there is so much wisdom that all of a sudden this whole other world was opened up to me, Paul, where I went, oh, my word. And, you know, you can pick up the catechism and you can literally understand the Our Father maybe for the first time ever. Mm. You know, I I mean, I never really understood that. Mm. And what really brought me back into the Catholic Church was Ignatius of Loyola. Ah. That was the little culprit that all of a sudden there's a... There's a priest here locally by the name of Father Bill Watson, and he runs an organization called the Sacred Story Institute. And he wrote a book that is entitled 40 Weeks, An Ignatian Path to Christ Through Sacred Story Prayer. Now, I'm the chapter president of Legatus here in Seattle. Father Watson comes to our uh, meetings. And I said, you know, that book has a title that only a Jesuit can come up with. 40 weeks, an Ignatian path through Christ. I mean, what is it? It's 11 words. I mean, so, but my Catholic friend gave me a copy of the book when I was in this asking questions. And we, it's not a book you read, but it's a book you experience and you go through it over the course of nine months. And we went through it together over the course of about... 20 to 22 months. We did it twice. And that's when all of a sudden light bulbs were just going off all over the place. And I, I so resonated with Ignatius. He was like, you know, a 16th century psychiatrist. And he enters, he brought the world of psychiatry and, and spirituality and faith formation together in a way that really worked for me. So, you know, prayers and thanksgiving to Ignatius of Loyola. Will you briefly explain Ignatian spirituality and share how it affects your faith, family, and your work? Oh, yeah. 
So Randy, one of the things, and I'm going to say this, that I'm going to give you my interpretation of, you know, Ignatian spirituality, Father Watson would maybe give you another, what in the 40 weeks, and I'm going to make reference to that primarily, that over 40 weeks, 13 of those first, 13 of those weeks, the first 13 is what Father Watson calls spiritual archaeology. And what he's doing is he's helping us pull back uh, the the layer of all of our addictions, all of our attachments, all of the experiences that we have that has brought that have brought us to that moment in time. And there's a there's a thing that he does which is called a whole life confession. And it's not to intend that you give a confession for your entire whole life. But the things that are most uh, germane to you over the first 13 weeks. So I think that Ignatian spirituality, and a lot of people will understand of it or know of it through the examination of conscience, which, you know, Ignatius had all of the Jesuits do at least twice a day. And in that, what he's doing is he's helping them become aware where are you? in alignment with the gospel and where are you in alignment with living your life in a way that's tuned to what it says in scripture? Where are you not? And what will you do differently to correct that? That's, you know, very rudimentary terms. The next 13 weeks are learning a prayer process that Father Watson has, and it's part of the rosary. It's part of just this is how you do a meditation for 15 minutes every day. You spend three minutes meditating on the word creation, three minutes meditating on the word presence, three minutes on the word memory, three on mercy, and three on eternity. And I'll put some meat on the bones. Creation means that all three of us and everyone who's listening to this was created by love in love, and for love. A radical thing for me to to understand when I never knew that a faith life could be relational and personal, but it was, I got it, I understood. Made from love, in the image of God, and that we are made for love, by love. So you, you meditate on that. Presence is, for me, in my words, we're never alone. We are always in the presence of the divine. We are the ones that separate ourselves from that by the choices that we make because we are given free will. And the moment I then put other things on the altar, then that presence is diminished. It's not gone away, but it's diminished. But in the here and now, God is present. Memory is that any violation of love done to us or by us is in our memory. And it's those memories that we carry around with us that either prevent God from fully entering into our lives. So, for example, I mean, there are people in my professional life. I was on the phone uh, just moments ago with a senior executive in a Fortune 500 company. She's, they are having a difficult time with her Okay, I keep on wanting to use that that female pronoun. She's having a difficult difficult time with her boss. She was in a relationship in 1997 that ended in a divorce because the husband was abusive, physically and emotionally. So all of a sudden, what I learned is that this is triggering all of those memories from 1997, and now her behavior is linked to 1997 as opposed to 2024. That's the linkage. Right. So the memories, any violation of love done to us or by us is in our memory. But the good news, grace and mercy abound. So when we when we focus on mercy, it is something that we can extend towards others. But grace is something that we receive from the Holy Spirit. And that when we receive that, that helps change and shape our memories. And when we change the memory, We can do something, as a theologian once said, to create a new heaven on earth today. I can say a kind word. I can do something. I can can live the Beatitudes. So 
what I learned is that that's how that prayer becomes a way of living your life. And then the last third is all around detachment and discernment. And to know there can be something that is so incredibly appealing to you, Randy. And it's like cotton candy. You just want more of it, but it's going to take you further away from Christ. And there are some things that are really hard, like finishing a triathlon, but that's going to bring you closer to Christ. So sometimes the hard things are the things that we need to step into. And the easy things are the things we have to step away from. That's discernment. So for me, summarizing, that I think that what Ignatian spirituality is, it's, it is partially psychological. It is spiritual. It's prayer. Um, and it is a way for us to make the kingdom of God more real every single day. How'd I do? Great. <laughs> awesome. Sounds great to me. All right. Well, great that's... reminder of Ignatian spirituality. Yeah. And so, you know, and... whenever I talk about this, I truly try to just tell everyone I'm not the vehicle for this. Excuse me. I'm the vehicle. I'm not the source. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm repeating what has been said by Father Watson and, and Ignatius. So there's no, that's not Hugh wisdom. That's Ignatius and Father Watson. Right. And it's good for anyone who's interested in learning more. Like you said, there's usually you can go through a class and go through the the training. And it does take, you know, nine months uh, to to really get into the meditations and read the yeah. readings from the Bible. It's just a beautiful process and learning well, let, the let me do one thing, Paul. I didn't fully answer Randy's question because he said, How does that then shape your your professional life and your personal life? If you believe that every person that you're coming in contact with, Randy, is a beautiful, blessed, and brilliant child of God, then you would look at them as being having been created in love and for love, and that the only way to respond to that kind of love is to love in return. So I'm a huge advocate for the Beatitudes. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about how I use it in my secular work, but it shapes... Um, how I think about customers and it shapes how I think about my work and how I articulate ideas. Um, and, and it shapes a lot about the leadership development, uh, about just if, is your leadership a loving act? Pretty simple. Tell me what it is that you really want to accomplish. And I will guarantee you, that one of the first things you have to do is you got to fall in love with that idea. And, and you have to strip away things, not just add things on. And so I think that our faith life is a stripping away. And so this process helps me strip away my, my dirt so that I can better do that with other people. And, and Hugh, you're, you're an entrepreneur, right? And so now you have this, great spiritual basis, you know, to keep it within the guardrails as we discussed. Um, how does your faith help you in difficult moments when, you know, you are in certain situations with your company or, or any aspect of your life? Um, how, really how does that help you? Yeah, thank you. It, it's interesting. I had, so you're both probably familiar with the term consolation and desolation, right? So consolation is where it's not something that's planned. It's just something that's given to us. I think it through the Holy Spirit, but we are consoled and we, we experience in a very real sense for us. So that means it may be physical for me. It may be auditory for somebody else, but we just, we feel unified with Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And it could last maybe five seconds or five minutes. It was last week when I was doing the holy hours. So I do I do the morning prayer, and then I say the rosary. And if I read all the Psalms, that takes me about an hour and 10 minutes. But I was doing this, this meditation. I was just kind of really saturating myself. And all of a sudden, 
things started coming together in a way that I had never experienced them before. And all of a sudden I was reading some of the Psalms and I was, it was literally like I was sitting up straight in my chair and I was like, oh my word, that means this, that means that. And all of a sudden I was seeing this connection and things were coming together in a way that I had never experienced before. And I remember this lasted for probably five minutes. And all of a sudden I went, wait a minute, wait, this is constellation. This is what it is. <laughs> and I had this just, I must have had a beaming smile on my face going, this is awesome. And then there was this kind of thought, don't chase this. Don't try and mimic it. Don't try and recreate it. Just take it as a gift. And what I will say is that after that, that idea of really treating people as beautiful, blessed, brilliant children of God, um, it really took on a whole new meaning. And it became much more tangible. Um, I mean, I could do it through my own device, but now I feel truly that it's more than I'm, and I'm, I'm going to use the wrong word, but I'm just being the vehicle and just allowing it to work through me. And so, you know, I think I got lost there. So I don't know if I <laughs> answered your question. I kind of got lost in the experience and forgot where we were going. Well, I mean, you you bring up that's really important consolation and desolation, which helps guide you in your decision making. Yes. And right. then, like you said, consolation can come and go, but you like on the flip side, when you're in desolation, you never want to make any decisions, right? Because right. then you're not probably focusing on God's will and grace, right? So, right. Well, you know, a lot of the work that I do from a, in a secular world. So, what? So, this is my sixth company. You know, I've always been a small business owner. And so, you know, I've, I've always just kind of been a small business guy. I would try something, start something, buy something, try to grow it. And, you know, had a modicum of success, no huge success, right? Um, but what's changed now is, and there's a lot of folks in the world of business that they they have one five-letter word, one five-letter word that matters most to them. And that five-letter word is money. And before I became Catholic, somebody said to me, you got your, your priorities all wrong. Your number one priority needs to be value. Create exquisite value for people and the money will follow you. Don't worry about it. Just create value. And I was having a conversation with our chaplain once, and I told him that, and he said, why don't you replace the five-letter word value with Jesus? Just follow Jesus. Just go do what he does. And I went, well, <laughs> all right, well, that took me 12 years <laughs> to get there, but I'm glad I got there. So, you know, what we, what we do is we convert, and this is, it's a secular term, but for me, not, and I'll kind of tell you a little bit. I feel like I'm a Trojan horse in the secular world. So I work with Fortune 500 companies as well as, you know, executives and entrepreneurs and mid-market companies. That's what I do. And what we do is we help them convert their human potential into inspired performance. And that inspired performance, when that is present, it's a game changer that we've seen. And when I look at the research today, 70 2% of people feel burned out. 73% uh, of people say that they are chronically distracted. Uh, Microsoft did some research, and this is in 2018, that 53% of employees trust a stranger more than they trust their boss. Now the question is, after three and a half years, four years of a worldwide pandemic, did that number go up or go down? And I think the trust factor is, has gone down. So, you know, in the technology world and where I work, the risks in the business are, are at an all-time high. But the attention and the focus of the people that we work with is at an all-time low. So what we're doing is we're really looking at this idea of human potential and saying, this is something that's very real. It is about 
uh, human well-being. It's about human dignity. And if we can move the needle on that, I can show you how it's going to move the needle on performance and profit and all those other things. So whether people know it or not, when we're doing values work, I actually present the Beatitudes, but I've secularized them. So get this, uh, I'm, I'm delighted about this. In a Fortune 500 company, publicly traded, they wanted to do some work around values clarification. And so I just said, let me give you eight examples of what comprise a healthy culture. And if we know, blessed are the poor in spirit, so blessedness is about happiness, right? Um, poor in spirit. And if you read Father Kirby and others, and what you'll hear is there's humility. So what I did is I said, humility. That's the number one thing that leaders need to have. But I recognize that you don't want to just think of humility as being a wallflower. So we'll call it humble swagger. And so when all these executives looked at humble swagger, they went, oh, yeah, I like that. And the swagger part is, yeah, you can be supremely confident, but it has to be married to humility. The moment you think you're the smartest person in this room, everybody else's brain starts to slow down and they will not contribute. And so you lose the access to their brilliance, their talent, their skills. So you have to be teachable. You have to be the learning avatar. And you need to come up to people and say, Paul, that's a great idea. Tell me more about that. How did you come to that conclusion? How would you see us using that here? Well, I'm confident if we were to do this, that, and the other, then this team, would we'd really... So that team uh, is now rolling out the eight eight characteristics of healthy culture, but they don't know where they came from. Mm. <laughs> so that's what I do uh, every day, which is try to infuse uh, a little love into my work. What would you say your company is Clara's Consulting? What mm -hmm. would you say the goals and objectives are? Um, it's really pretty simple, to change the course of human events. That is simple. <laughs> it's now, simple to say and hard to do, right? Yeah, you know, so I'm being a little flippant there. Um, I would say that the goal of the company, I've got two. I've got, listen, we our mission is to help you convert your human potential. And our goal is, and I can say this emphatically, that 80% of the people inside an organization are are close to disengaged. So if you have a ten, if you've got an eight cylinder car, that means six of your cylinders are not really working. And so what I can do is my goal is to say I'm going to show you how when you start caring for your employees, and when you start enabling employee flourishing, that those employees that flourish will then enable customer flourishing. And that customer flourishing means that you will have greater revenue, you'll have lower expenses, you'll have greater productivity, you'll have greater satisfaction, and you will not have high turnover, and you'll get stuff done faster. So if you want to have a flourishing business, it's really pretty simple. Create a business that enables uh, customer flourishing and that is the catalyst is employee flourishing. And when those things happen, uh, it's just a joy to work there. So that's what we do. We enable employee and human flourishing. And in your email signature, you have uh, love, love deeply, learn daily, lead boldly. Oh, right. um, <laughs> how did your sports and faith journey uh, help you distill all these statements that have now been the forefront of your company? Um, I'm going to go back to 2007. And uh, the guy who was my best man asked me whether or not uh, I wanted 
to do a triathlon? I said, yeah, absolutely. Now, I've always been physically active. When I, I ran track and field when I was in junior high school, high school, and college. I started riding bikes uh, after college, and I like to go for long distances. So I've always been physically healthy. One of my first jobs was that I was uh, a part of a management team that we would go out and buy 80,000 square foot uh, tennis facilities, for example, and we'd convert them into wellness centers. So we bring in phase three cardiac rehab, we bring in exercise physiologists, nutritionists. And so one of my first early jobs after college was to sit down with someone and say, Randy, this is where you are. Tell me where you want to be in three years or four years. And so often what I heard is, I don't want to talk about three years. I want to talk about three months. I'm going to a party. It's July 15th. I've got to put on some slimmer clothes. Help me get there. I'm like, hmm. So I've been fascinated by helping people achieve what they wanted to physically, fitness-wise, health-wise. So I did that for nine years, managed uh, eight different locations, and was always paying attention to the idea of how do you optimize your health? How do you optimize what you do from a nutrition perspective? How do you use periodization in all of the training techniques that we have now to maximize muscle strength and growth, but to minimize injury? So that was just part of my DNA. And so when I left that business, I went into financial services for eight years. Um, and I was doing the same thing. I was just saying, if you want to maximize your financial health, then this is how we do that. We do this, we do that, we, we do risk mitigation, et cetera. And it turned out that just my entire life had been about, we all have this potential, this God-given talent. But because of those memories that we carry around going back to Ignatius, we don't maximize them. And, you know, it, I just sometimes wonder, and you guys know this, that 72% of Catholics don't even believe in the real presence. They don't believe in the real presence. And so a Protestant friend of mine said to me, he said, if I thought that that was really Jesus on the altar, I would crawl over broken glass to get there. I said, well, churches would be full. <laughs> the churches would be full, right? So that goes back to the memories. And so from a physical and from a training perspective, when my friend asked me, do you want to do a triathlon? I, was in, I wasn't in the best of shape, but I said, sure, no problem. I can do that. And at that point I was, let me think, 47. But when we got to the meeting, I thought it was maybe like a sprint or an Olympic distance triathlon, but it wasn't. It was a half Ironman, which is a, it was a 1.2 mile swim, 13.1 mile bike, no, 56 mile bike ride and 13.1 mile run. I'm not a swimmer. So when I heard 1.2 miles, I'm like, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this, but no, I had, and I wrote the check for a hundred dollars. And all of a sudden my friend said, what? You chicken? You don't want to do this? So I did the triathlon. It was unbelievably hard because on the day we did it, it got up to 92 degrees. The run was on a black top. So the sun was beating down on top of you. This And it was then bouncing off of the black top. I stopped three times to throw up. It was that hard. And so... I gutted it out, and what, how I gutted it out was that every mile, I had raised money for people who had cancer, so every mile was like a devotional to that particular person, so I would keep them in my mind, I would pray about them, and say, no matter how hard this is, it's way easier than what they're experiencing. So I finished, and, and I thought that I would finish in like six hours, I finished in eight hours and two minutes. When I came across the finish line, I literally just went, okay, I'm done. I'm exhausted. It was the first time I'd done anything like that. I went back to my hotel room. I took a shower and I took a three and a half hour nap. I was just out. I go back to where the team is and everybody's having a party. There's pizza and beer. You know, everybody's laughing and having a great time. Now, keep in mind, 
that means that I was from start to finish, that puts me at about 11 and a half to 12 hours. And then as we're all sitting around, somebody says, has anyone seen Kathy? Now, Kathy was a larger woman who was in her 50s and who was doing a triathlon for the very first time. And so people started trying to find out where Kathy was. And a couple of people actually went out on the course to just check, was she okay? Maybe she had got injured. Maybe it was dark. So they came back and said, we found Kathy and she's four miles away from the finish line. Now she'd been out there for 12 and a half to 13 hours. Mm. Now she's got another four miles to go. Wow. And those miles are taking about 20 minutes each for her to do because she's so exhausted. And she, and whenever I think about Kathy, I get so emotional because she had a, a lamp on her head because she knew she was not coming over when it was daylight. Hmm. And so they came back and they told us that Kathy was coming in and she's four miles away. So we then said, well, she's got about another hour and 20 minutes roughly before she comes here. So we're waiting around. And then the next thing, you know, we see this head bobbing out in the distance and there are two or three people running alongside of her with her. Mm. They've been out there. The, and so the finish line is gone. There's nothing to celebrate her coming across. There is no finish line. Mm. So I want you to imagine there's 80 people who now create an artificial finish line. And she comes over and 80 people engulf this woman. Mm. They just absolutely swallow her up and they are loving on her like and i get so emotional about it even today because i think about it in that moment i didn't know what was going on for me but i respected kathy more than what i did she was out there for 15 and a half hours wow wow 15 and a half hours comes across and when i spoke with her afterwards i said how did you do that? I mean, I just don't even know how you did that. She said, I raised $10,000 for people with cancer research. That's what we're doing here. And everything I just said was, it's going to be a slug fest, but I'm going to get it done for my friend who has cancer. So you asked, Paul, where did love deeply come from? I started thinking about that when you do extreme events like that, so when you pray the sorrow, the mysteries of sorrow, and all of a sudden Jesus is picking up his cross, I think that in some regards, the extravagant love that Christ gave to us is then manifested in some small way when Kathy is out there for 15 and a half hours for her friend. She didn't do it because she liked her friend. She did it because she loved her friend. So loving deeply started just floating around in my brain and going, that's really the key. Do you love this person? Do you love this idea? Do you love it? Because if you don't, you're going to be half baked on this. And then I realized through reading about love that love is an action. So it's a doing. And I started to think about Pentecost. And, you know, so there's the crucifixion. Where do we find the apostles afterward? They're behind um, a locked door, yeah. right? They're in the upper room. They're, they're behind a locked door. And it's not until Christ comes in and he says to them twice, peace be with you. So, and then the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. And what happens after the Holy Spirit comes on them? Then they go out two by two and they start evangelizing, right? Because after he was crucified, after they took him away from the Garden of Gethsemane, they all dispersed. They weren't with him. And then what does Peter do when he's in, he denies him three times? That's fear. So I started thinking, well, if you really love something, maybe you're more courageous. Maybe you're willing to be a little bit bolder in what you say. 
And there, and I don't remember where it came from specifically, I said, but you have to learn how to love. If it's an action, then that means it's a behavior. It's something that you can do. And there's, if it's behavioral, you can learn how to do it. So I started thinking, love deeply. Tell me, and in, in my coaching work, I say to people, what is it you want to be exemplary at? What do you want to, the fourth beatitude, what is it that you want to be excellent at? Tell me what it is. And if you love that idea, I can help you get there. But you're going to have to learn this is what you stop doing. This is what you have to replace it with. And if so, when you learn that, you will find yourself being more confident, more courageous. And dare I say, you're going to live boldly. So I can say this, that when I put all of that together, my, my second book is coming out called Lead Boldly. Uh, and it's about how do you create and foster greatness in others? But you got to love them first. Do you really love them? You know, if you've got kids, if you really love them, you know, what are you going to do? And how do you help them learn and grow? And then how do you help them have the confidence to go out and do something that's bold? You know, that's, that's awesome. the big regret a lot of people have. It's not what I did. It's what I didn't do. But, you know, the, there are other smaller stories that are not 15 and a half hour kind of stories. And so what I want to say about leading boldly or living boldly, it doesn't have to be a grand intention. You know, my wife is exceptionally good. She is so much better at this than I am. Allison is that when she makes a meal that she says, oh, this will be fun. She doesn't make it for two or four. She makes it for eight. And what she does is she gives it away. And I remember when we first got married, I said, this is awesome. We're going to have this for like weeks. And she said, no, we're not. Just enjoy it now. I said, you made a whole bunch. She said, this is going to go to Roger and Judy. It's going to go to Mike and Corolla. And it's going to go over here. And I went, whoa, 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 wait. She said, remember that love deeply thing? <laughs> We're going to give this away. I went, oh, yeah, right, right, right. Enjoy the present moment. Yeah. So are there any other stories besides Kathy, which is a very heartfelt story, is there any other story that you would like to share where your faith intervened and strengthened you in your life? Um, yeah, you know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a little bit about a meditation that I was doing probably five years ago, Randy. And it was one where, you know, I'm thinking about creation, presence, memory, mercy. And all of a sudden, it became as clear as day. The, the, I just heard these words. So clear. And the words were, a leader's journey from living in fear to living in holy boldness. And I went, wow. So I literally, I mean, if you see the chair over there, I got up from the chair, came over here, and I wrote that down and went, wow, where'd that come from? Now, my wife is a senior vice president of marketing. I walk upstairs and I say, honey, look what I just got. I was doing my meditation. And she looked at it and she said, that, that's good. What are you going to do with it? I said, I don't know. <laughs> what ended up happening was I then reached out to a friend of mine who is a Christian, but not a Catholic. I said, I got this idea for a talk. It's called A Leader's Journey from Living in Fear from, from Living in Fear to Holy Boldness. They took me to three different organizations and had me deliver the speech. For the last three years, a fellow Legatus member of mine, Brent Beabout, and I have been talking about this idea, holy boldness. So well, there's this idea that we're working on called the Holy Boldness Project. And what we're interested in is I'm uh, one of the benefactors to an organization called Focus, which is a fellowship of Catholic University students here in Washington. I love these kids. I just love them. They're on fire. The missionaries are just inspirational for me. I love spending time with them. God bless them. 
So, but what we found is that kids start thinking about leaving the Catholic Church between the ages of 13 and 14. And they do that because they may get confirmed, they may get their first communion, but there's not a path for them to run on after that. Now they go off to Catholic university or to a Christian university, but then, even then, once they get into the world of work, they get busy, they stop going to mass, they don't go to confession, there's no faith formation. So what we said is there needs to be a roadmap. So we are business professionals in Legatus. We're successful. Um, and so we've been thinking about this idea. The Holy Boldness Project is going to work on three things. What we're going to do is we're going to take faith formation and we're talking with a denominator. We're talking with the Dominicans. They've got content for faith formation. We want to take that and marry it with professional development. So if you want to be a business owner, if you want to be a manager or a leader or an employee in an organization and you want to really do it with excellence, we want to put those two things together. So when you think about the Beatitudes, what does humble swagger look like? What's the underpinning from a Catholic faith perspective about why you should do that? What can you learn about entrepreneurism from Catholic social teaching? Put those two mm -hmm. things together and then include the third pillar is to do it where you build really robust communities. So here's the weird part. So we get this, and then we just start talking about it. So we talk to Focus, and they're like, we love that idea. We got 120,000 former missionaries. We'd love to be able to do this. Then we talk to somebody else, and they said, that's a great idea. I can introduce you to so-and-so. We talked to a foundation. The foundation said, this is great. Promise you, when you're ready to launch, you won't have any problem with money. And I'm going, wait a minute. Wow. This is not us. This is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Boldness Project is getting roots, and we are now making two presentations, one in March and one in May, to lock in all the faith formation, the community piece, and then we're going to marry it with professional development, and that's what's going to be... So that's something that that's something that's happening, and I'm just trusting the Holy Spirit to take us to where we need to go. Wow, that is powerful. In combination. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yes. I just keep on. I get giddy when I talk about it. It's like, wow, yeah. this is gonna be cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, keep an eye on that for sure. Yeah. Well. Uh, you had mentioned earlier, Hugh, about how you were fascinated by the the team, you know, the the people and their contributions of sports teams when you were in the goal way back when, back in right. Scotland. Um, and you, like you're saying, you're talking, you see all these crossovers, right, between our faith, our family, and sports teams and business entities. Mm -hmm. um, does this build uh, this all the trust and virtue into your consulting, your speaking, and book writing? It's just, it's just kind of all builds up from there? It does. You know, um, I think too often people's faith life is not integrated into what happens when they leave church. You know, I'm a lector, and I also, uh, so when I'm up on the AMBO, I see people coming in after Mass has started, and I see them leaving early. And I'm like, so you're missing something here that do you, most people don't even know what the Mass is about, right? So, I pray for them, and the way that I look at it is when your faith becomes real, when it becomes personal, when it's relational and personal, then there is no way for it not to be relational and personal with other people because it transforms us. It becomes less about us, and it becomes much more about the greater good for the other, wishing the good of the other. So, yeah, I'm always asking myself, in this moment, how can I love the person that I'm going to interact with? And the way to do that is to learn as much as ab about them as I can, and then help them understand what flourishing looks like for them, and to say, that is possible. Do you want to do that? So for me, 
it's like we are given free will and someone when i come along people listen if if i can help you i will i you know and of course i work within a certain context within the world of work but if i can help you i will the question is you just have to say yes i'm in and the people that i work with they don't need a coach but they want a coach because they know that they will never achieve their maximum potential unless they've got somebody speaking into them, loving on them and helping them to see things, changing their memories and their mindset so that they can be their very best and to be at their best. So for me, it, it's not something I just do. It's like, it's just, it's just the way I live. Are there any other current or future projects that you are involved in that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, the, one of the other ones other than the Holy Boldness Project is just Legatus. So I'm in Seattle, and there are about 600,000 Catholics here. And that's 600,000 for the entire state. Uh, it's a pretty unchurched area. So what we are trying to do is we're just trying to be the Army Field Hospital here in Seattle for Catholic business leaders so that they can come and be fed. You know, so for those of your listeners who are in this particular area, yeah, you know, there's nourishment uh, within Legatus for those individuals who are business owners and who are executives. And so if there's anything I can do to help any of those individuals here, I'm all ears. Happy to help. Okay. We can definitely put a link to that in our show notes, Hugh. And if there's cool. also for your leading, your Holy Boldness Project, we'd like to put that in the show notes as well. If there's anything we can link to. That's, you know, if, if I may, let's, can we put in a link to the Lead Boldly book? Because the whole second section of Learn Daily, I use that as the Beatitudes. So when you read that now, you're really reading my interpretation of a secular, healthy culture beatitude. So love to have that in your show notes. And we can circle back around when we launch Holy Boldness, but that probably won't be until maybe third or fourth quarter of this year. Okay. Okay, great. And then, and Hugh, as we close, any last spiritual insights you'd like to share with our listeners? I would ask people to... Or I would suggest this idea of memories. And if you were to think about just positioning that at the in the middle between creation and presence and mercy in eternity, that flows, creation and presence flows through your memories and shapes and forms the level of mercy and a new creation that you help create. So if there's any violations of love, those are the things that are shaping how you think. And I would always just take you back to Philippians 4.8. Whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is uplifting, focus on those things. And too often we don't do that. And so I would say, just remember memories and how powerful that is. And if anyone has any questions about it, I've got some a video that I have done about that. And I'm happy to share that with people. Okay. Well, great. We can put that in there too. And thank you for tying the scripture to that. That final statement is beautiful. Yeah. Okay. We'll close with prayer, Randy. You want to lead us on out? Sure. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Hugh and his ministry. We ask your blessing on his family and any upcoming things that he's working on. We pray for those who are listening to our podcast. We pray that something that we said today would lead them closer to you. We ask these things through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Holy Mary Mother of God. Of God. Pray for us sinners now, now and at the hour, hour of our death. Of our death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, Hugh Blaine, for joining us here on the Catholic Sportsman Show and spending time Thank with you, us. Thank you, Hugh. It's been great. Listen, it was my pleasure. You guys are great, and uh, I'm really grateful for both of you. So I'll leave you with what I say to everybody. Lead boldly, guys. Awesome. Great. Love that. All right. God bless you both.